Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at the district.church. You uh, have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those as well uh, and turn to Acts chapter 4. Oh, wait, there we go. Is that on? No? All right. Wait, is that it? Okay, cool. Um, just turn it up a little bit. All right, Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Um, and. We are in kind of part two of, of really a two-week um, talk on, on finances. Um, and so this is, um, if, if you've been with the district kind of from the beginning, then this is the second time you've heard me talk on finances because we rarely talk about it here at the church. Um, and, and not because we're like, yeah, we're never going to talk about finances or people are just naturally generous. Um, but part of that is because we, we don't want to harp on it all the time, but the reality is, is Jesus did harp on it a lot. And so anytime that we're in um, our series and our series come to a talk that has to do with finances, then we're going to address them from a biblical perspective. And so we're not like launching a campaign this week to try to raise money or anything like that. We're, we're simply going to look biblically at um, the idea of generosity and where this actually um, comes from, from the scriptures themselves. And so, um, so don't get nervous. Like you don't have to open up your wallets or anything like that while we're jumping into this. You'll probably actually hear me say things that most guys don't say in the church, like don't give. Like I'm going to say that, but we'll get there in a minute. Um, Acts chapter 4, verse 32 um, is where we're going to pick up and start. Acts 4, 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And grace and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each one as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles a Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her 
beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So tithing is a matter of life and death. No, I'm just kidding. That's not, a, that's not the point here, but we will get into it. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you so much for your word and just the ability to be able to open it and have the opportunity to see um, specifically what it is that you are communicating to us and what it is that you're communi- communicating to us today, specifically around the idea of finances, around money, um, around our love for things. And so, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit, who is in this place right now and who is already in our hearts and in our minds, would guide us into your truth and would lead us to be able to know you more and to treasure you above all things so that we would receive great joy and great satisfaction in that place and in that place alone. And so, Father, loosen our hearts in relation to things today and tighten and bind our hearts in relation to people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Those are the two points um, that we talked about last week, which was kind of the um, foundational message for jumping into this next kind of two examples of, of dealing with finances and specifically looking at Barnabas and then Ananias and Sapphira. And so those two points that we looked at is the role of the Holy Spirit and the role of God in our lives when it comes to God's creation is he's doing two things. When it comes to his creation, he is tightening our hearts in relation to other people. And what I mean by that is all of God's provision for us as a, as a community of faith, as a people, as individuals who have possessions, who have a house, who have cars, who have a bank account, who have budgets, all of those things, what God is doing is he's tightening our relationship in the way we steward those things in order to bind us to other people, in order for us to use those things in order to bless and to serve and to create capacity, to create opportunities for people to be able to come in and and be a part of the things that we possess. And so if that looks like a house and you have a dining room and you have a dinner table, that dinner table is not meant for just you and your spouse or you and your kids. It's meant in order to be a place of sanctuary for people to be able to come in from the outside in order for you to use that space to be able to bless others, to bless them with conversation, to bless them with um, pouring into their hearts, pouring into their souls, asking them deep questions, um, sometimes dark questions, sometimes light questions, any type of questions that's in order to show them that you care for them, that you love them, that you're for them, because that's exactly what Christ did for us. You could kind of look at it proverbial, like he left his dinner table in heaven in order to come down and open up a dinner table here on earth in order to invite us to the table so that he could press into our hearts press into our souls, press into to our identities to really get at what our heartstrings are being pulled towards. And the second thing that he's doing, not only is he tightening us towards people, but he's loosening our hearts in relationship towards things. And that's really what we're going to see in this um, passage today as we start to dive into this idea of Barnabas and Ananias and what's the difference between them are those two things. One was tightened in relationship towards others and the others were tightened in relationship towards their things. Now, this idea of generosity is a freedom. It's not a law. It's a freedom. It's not a law. A lot of people will look at this passage and just look at it surface level and be like, Wow, like if we, if we don't give to the church, 
we're gonna we're like we're at sake of dying. <laughs> like we're we're literally just dying. They're like Dwayne's gonna have to carry me out of here and find like the nearest cemetery and like lay me down to rest. Like that's that's what some people could look at this and see. And and my job is to unpack this in order for you to not see that. And 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 I'm gonna kind of jump ahead a little bit just so that you can see that before I then come back to these two examples. Look at verse four in chapter five. Verse 4 in chapter 5 says this, While it, and this is referring to Ananias, referring to the land that he possesses, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? So whose land is it? Yeah, it's Ananias and Sapphira's land, right? While it remained unsold, it's still in your possession. It's still your own land, all right? So this idea of coming into the church and kind of living this poverty gospel, we'll just sell everything we own and possess and we'll just give it to the church is not a reality. That's not what the gospel's calling us to do is get rid of everything that you own and give it to the church. Even in Acts chapter 2, when we looked at the fact that they were selling possessions and that they were distributing it to those who had need, that they were selling their houses as well, it also in turn says that they were still gathering in their houses. So like they didn't sell all of their houses. They didn't sell everything that they had. And so rather this is looking at areas in their life in which they can kind of look at God's provision over them and say, what can we do with what we possess in order to sell it because we don't necessarily need it in order for them to be able to bless the church, in order to bring it to the church and distribute it to the church for the church to then distribute it out to the poor, to those in need for ministry purposes, for the sake of the gospel. He, he continues on in this even that much more. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Um, oh, wait, proceeds. Yeah, wait, let me back up verse. Verse 3, the proceeds of it were his. He says, when you sold it, did those proceeds not still remain yours? Like, what he's saying is you have the freedom. He sells this land. He has all this money. What, what, what Luke is trying to explain here is that you have at your disposal what you want to do with that money. Total freedom. Coming into the faith, coming into the church is not the church then telling you you have to do this or you don't have to do this. It's complete and total freedom for them to operate in this way. And is that really not the entire message of the gospel? Is that we're free to live out the identity that we have. We are not called to have to live out the identity that we have. Like, for example, think about it this way. Do we love so that God will love us? Do we love so that God will love us? No. Why do we love? We love because he first loved us. So we love because it's out of the overflow of the fact that God's already provided for us all the love that we need. And therefore, now we're able to love others freely because from God we're receiving all the love that we need. Therefore, think that train of thought. Do we give to God so that God will give to us? No. We do not give in order for him to give to us. We do not give in order for him to then make provision for us. No, what God says is I'm making provision for you. And in my making provision for you, I'm freeing you of what you need in order for you to then bless others with what you have. 
best way to say that is in Christ, I have everything that I need. And therefore, I'm free to give everything that I have because I have Christ. Christ is all sufficient for me. We love because he first loved us. We give because he's first made provision over us. Now, where do we get that idea that, that in God, that he is providing for us all that we need? I want you to turn over with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, um, we're going to look at verse 22. So this is still same same writer of the book of Acts wrote Luke. And one of the things, one of the major themes that Luke has throughout the book of Luke, as well as the book of Acts, is really just this idea of getting the people of God free from things in order to be free for people. That's one of his biggest messages that he's always pushing. Luke 12, starting in verse 22, I want you to see this. And this is Jesus speaking. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Now, I love that he uses the illustration of um, birds here. And so, let me ask you, like, have you ever watched birds? And no, Ransford, I'm not about to, like, go on a birding sermon here. Um, so don't get too excited. But have you ever just, like, gone outside and just, like, watched birds? Are they not constantly just going? Like, they're active, they're moving, they're pecking, they're going, they're storing up for themselves, they're, they're building something, they're looking for food. Like, they're constantly going, going, going. And yet, God says, I'm the one that feeds them. Like, no one, really, in, in the animal kingdom is, and, and if I'm wrong, correct me later, but no one in the animal kingdom, I feel like, is more active than birds when it comes to storing up for themselves, when it comes to building nests, when it comes to just being active and moving. And I think one of the reasons why they use this illustration is because how often do we find ourselves constantly going, 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 active, trying to work for ourselves in order to make provision for ourselves. And what God is saying at the end of the day is you can, you can toil all you want. You can work all you want. You can find as many jobs as you want, but I'm the one that's providing for you. I'm the one that's putting food on your table. I'm the one that's putting a house over your head. I'm the one that's doing those things and making provision for you in order for you to be able to live out this idea of freedom from things and binding yourself towards people. And so he's saying, don't be anxious about your job. Don't be anxious about your house. Don't be anxious about cars. Don't be anxious about food or clothing on your back. I'm for you and I'm providing all of those things for you. He goes on to say, verse 25, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which... Um, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Now he goes the complete opposite fact. If you've got the, the birds that are constantly going, 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 now he's looking at grass and lilies that sit in one spot and never move. 
And yet God is looking at them and saying, even the one who's inactive, the one who's not moving around, the one who's not storing up for itself, it is literally the most passive creation that God has is a grass or a flower or a lily or a tree. It goes nowhere and is fully dependent upon God bringing rain and sunshine in order for it to grow up, in order for it to be mature. And God is saying, I'm providing for them too. I'm making provision for them too. I am arraying them more splendorous than even Solomon. And as far as we're concerned, biblically speaking, in the wealth that Solomon had, there's never been anyone more wealthy. It makes Warren Buffett look like a impoverished, homeless man is King Solomon. And he's saying even King Solomon and all of his wealth, the flowers, the lilies, the way that I array them in splendor, he doesn't even compare. And yet they're completely passive. You've got active birds, you've got passive grass, God's making provision. He's providing for us. And then he comes back to this idea, you have little faith. In, verse, um, in chapter 4, verse 32 of Acts, what's he start out saying? Those who believe, those who believe, those who are in the family of God believing in God are the ones who are loosening their heart in relationship towards things and tightening their heart in relationship towards people. So that is the key. This isn't a message on, hey, figure out how to tighten your hearts toward God, towards God and people and figure out how to loosen your heart towards things. Like, no, no, no. It's believing the gospel. It's having faith in Christ and who he is and what he's accomplished and what he's doing in your life. It's, it's him saying in this passage, don't be anxious about your life. He said, don't be anxious. He also said, don't fear. Don't worry. Who in worrying has ever added a single hour to his life? If we can't even do that, why are we worried about everything else that's going on? Trust that God is doing what he says he's doing, that he's providing for you even much more than the lilies and the birds. Verse 29 in Luke 12, Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. He knows. He knows that we need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Therefore, verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Can we have a real talk for just a minute? How many of us in this room have asked God the question, God, why are you not providing for me? Let's just, come on, let's play it. God, why are you not providing for me? That's an unbiblical question. It's a wrong question. I'm not saying we don't have the anxiety of feeling that, but that anxiety is misplaced. And the struggle that we're feeling is misplaced when we say, God, why are you not providing for me? Because according to God, biblically, he says, I know exactly what you need, and I'm going to give it to you. So he is providing. A more biblical question would be, God, 
Why is it difficult for me to live inside of the provision you have for me? Why is it difficult for me to live inside of the provision that you have for me? Because this is where we start to to look at really a life audit. If you've given me all that I need and are continuing to proportion to me all that I need, then why am I struggling? This is where we need to have the spiritual audit for our hearts and our lives because it determines where our treasure is. Like, have you ever... Like, let's just say if if someone were to take the last six weeks of your life and put it on a video screen and you were to watch it. At the end of that movie, what would you say is what you treasure? Because what is going to be represented is where you spend your money, where you spend your time, what you invest your relationships in, What you're doing constantly is where your treasure ultimately happens. Um, I have an illustration that I was going to use with a $20 bill. I'm poor. I don't have a $20 bill. And so just imagine a $20 bill is in my hands. Take a $20 bill. There's nothingly, nothingly. That's a new one. That's a good one. I like it. There's nothing intrinsically valuable about a $20 bill. Right? Now, I saw this illustration this week, so I'm ripping it off Paul Tripp. There's nothing intrinsically valuable about a $20 bill. It's not $20 worth of paper, right? If it was $20 worth of paper, you'd have a stack of paper. It's not $20 worth of ink, you'd have a cartridge of ink, or at least half of one, based on cartridges these days. So what gives it $20 worth of value is its assigned value. The U.S. government has seen fit for it to be assigned $20 worth of value. So because it's then given $20 worth of value, it now operates under a certain level of control. It can control the purchasing of things that are worth $20. You give it to it, you can then retrieve it. So let's now kind of run that idea of assigned value, stay with me here, assigned value towards the way that we steward God's stuff for us, God's provision for us. So let's say you, you, you buy a house. That is three-fourths the cost of your monthly provision, your monthly budget. You're giving it an assigned value that this house is worth to me three-fourths of all that God is providing for me. That then only frees me to be able to use one-fourth of God's provision for me to be able to hopefully get groceries or, or pay card notes or whatever it looks like. So now my treasure is looking more into things rather than in treasuring Christ and ultimately being able to use the provision to be able to bless others. Say if you were to kind of keep in that train of thought, um, look at time. Say on any given day you have 16 hours of wakefulness. Is that, is that a word? Wakefulness? Sure. We'll go with it. Wakefulness, all right? 16 hours. Let's say you, you've got a Netflix show that you love binge watching, and you're going to give four hours a day to that. What you're saying is, I'm assigning four hours of value to this that is controlling one-fourth of my wakefulness time that I'm now not giving towards anything else. This is where we are able to determine what we ultimately treasure in life that then is assigned value that then holds control over 
our actual provision that God has for us. And this is why time audits, um, spiritual audits of our lives are so good and needed so that we can actually see whether or not we can move things around or sacrifice things on, on the altar of materialism and get rid of things in order to free ourselves up to do ultimately what Barnabas is doing and to not do what Ananias and Sapphira are doing. And that's what I want to lead into and, and kind of close out with these two examples so that you can see this here. We want to be like Barnabas. We don't want to be like Ananias. Barnabas is mentioned briefly in Acts 4, 36 through 37. It says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas. If you're in the early church and you ever want to know, like, if you're really in, if they change your name, you're in, all right? Like, you're good to go. Um, They call him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He's a Levite, a native of Cyprus, and he sold a field that belonged to him. Remember that? It belonged to him. It's his field. And he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. That's all it says for now. Later, we'll meet him as the advocate of the new convert Paul in Acts 9.27. Then he's the shepherd of new Gentile converts in Antioch in, in Acts 11.22. He's the one trusted with the relief for the poor in Acts 11.30. He's the first partner of Paul on his missionary journeys in Acts 13, verse 2. And he's the advocate for giving John Mark a second chance when the apostle Paul's not willing to. So Barnabas, again, is kind of like, just, he's, he's a good guy. He's a, he's a part of our group. Like, he's in. Like, he's, he's such a, like, I want to work with him. And Paul's like, nope, I'm not giving him a second chance. And they actually go their separate ways at that point. Barnabas is a guy who is not only just an encourager, but he's incredibly generous. He's generous with his time. He's generous with everything that's a part of his life because he wants the gospel of Christ to be spread among everyone. He sold his field, gave all the proceeds to the apostles. In this story, he stands for the way true faith in Christ creates a bond of love for people and cuts a bond of love for things. And then we have Ananias and Sapphira. They stand for the exact opposite, namely people who have not really been changed on the inside by being satisfied with all that God is for them in Christ, but who still want some place in the visible church. Like they're, they're still in the church. They're still coming to the church. They're still interacting with the church. But what they're ultimately revealing is that they're not of the church because they've not been truly transformed by the gospel of grace. They're living under a burden. They're living living under a, a law here. The reason they drop dead is not because this happens to all hypocrites, even though hypocrisy is the reason why they drop dead. It was kind of a, a, essentially a suicide of themselves, bringing, coming into the church and saying, we sold a field and we want to bring all the proceeds. And now the, the disciples aren't like um, just accountants here trying to be like, all right, we've got to crunch every single number. Like, how much did you sell the field for? We, we need to make sure that you give all of it. Rather, they're giving them the opportunity to be generous. I think this would have gone a lot different if Ananias and Sapphira came to them and said, hey, we're, we're, we sold a, a field for $100,000. We want to bless the church with $80,000. We want to use $20,000 in order to bless people personally with, with the way that we open up our home or the way that we provide meals for people. I think that would have gone a lot different for them. It wasn't the fact that they withheld from the church, but it was the motive for the reason why they withheld from the church. I think it's also... 
a reason for why they drop dead is not because God is just ready to kill people who lie. But rather, he's to make an example out of hypocrisy in the church that's going to kill you either now or later. That's going to destroy you either now or later. That's going to lead you to hell either now or later. And so this is one of the reasons why I said earlier, don't give. If you don't want to give, don't give. Don't tithe. Don't go to the district.church to the giving page and start giving if you don't want to give. Because we don't want to see this happen on multiple scales. I don't want to see you drop dead, but I also don't want to see you bound in the anguish of anxiety, of, of, of feeling like in order for me to be a good Christian, I've got to give to the church. I've got to tithe. I've got to try to figure out a way to make this work. No, that is hypocrisy. People who give, give joyfully and generously because it's out of the overflow that God has given them all that they need. That he's making provision for all that you need. That he's literally providing himself so much for you that you're able to now loosen yourselves from needing certain things in your life in order to receive some type of satisfaction. Maybe I don't need this amount of television because what I think I'm getting from it, I actually can get from Christ, and what I get from Christ is eternal, and that's temporary, and that's only numbing the soul, where over here he's healing my soul. Maybe I don't buy a certain car or a certain house or a certain thing that's going to make me house poor or car poor, because I think those things are going to make me live up to the Joneses next door or make me live up to some certain level of status that's going to provide satisfaction and security and stability for me. But what we end up doing is then only we're, we're punting in anxiety down the road. Because we're indebting ourselves to something that's going to crush us and a weight that's put over us that we cannot bear, that we're never meant to bear, that God is saying, I don't want you to bear that. I want you to free yourself of those things. Fear came over all of the people because of this story of Ananias and Sapphira. The fact that they, well, let me just lay it out here. Four things that they did. Number one, they loved their money. They loved their money. They made the sale. They looked at all the cash and they couldn't bear the thought of giving it all away. So number one sin that they entered into was the love of money. Number two, they wanted to look more generous than they really were. They wanted the apostles to think that they were like Barnabas, perhaps. They wanted the church to think that they were some type of religious elite, that they were more generous than they actually were. They wanted external religious approval. And so they were hoping that the people would praise them for that. They not only loved money, but they loved the praise of men. The two almost always go together. Number three, they then lied to cover their covetousness and to give the impression of generosity. They had to lie. If you love possessions and you love the praise of men, your love for truth 
will dissolve into deception and fraud. That's the meaning of hypocrisy. And the fourth thing, this always comes with hypocrisy, is they discredit the Holy Spirit. They say, you didn't, you didn't lie to us as apostles. You lied to God. You lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 3 says they lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 says they lied not to man but to God. And verse 9 says they tempted the Lord. Tempting the Lord's an, an interesting one. And I think this, this will ring true for a lot of us. Or at least I hope it does. I think there's this weird sense of um, lack of revere for God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as if they're not present with us. I think there's this, there's this kind of new age, new thinking that everything we do is here and God is there. And so what I do behind closed doors, Holy Spirit's not present. What I, what I do with my finances, Holy Spirit's not present. Like, like we, we kind of compartmentalize all of our things, all of our life. And then whenever we have an issue, we then kind of step outside of it and we go to God and say, hey, God, can you fix this? As if he's not already in that entire thing. And so it's kind of like they're, they're coming into the church. They're, they're already knowing that, yeah, we, we have this field, but we, we have this money now. We want to keep this money, but we, we want people to think we're more generous than we are. So when we go in, hey, we're going to tell them we're giving them this amount of money. And then it says they tempt the Lord. It's as if they walk in like God's not there or that the Holy Spirit's not present or that he's not actually going to do anything by us lying. And this is where I think it gets... It gets scary for us and for our society is there's this idea of licentiousness that we have within Christianity that there's a belief that as long as I keep sinning, God's just going to forgive me. That God really doesn't care. That God's really not going to deal justly with my sin. And I get the argument. There's a certain level of of. Um, beauty and grace, knowing that the more sin abounds, grace abounds even that much more. There's a certain beauty there that I can't outsend the cross, that I can't outsend Jesus' love and pursuit of me in forgiving me, that I can't outdo in evil what God does in good. And I get the argument, but here's the issue with the argument is that when we then profess to be believers in Christ, but yet posture ourselves in our life that we're just going to continue to sin because we're sinners and God's just going to continue to forgive, what that's actually revealing is not being adopted by a father who gives us grace to overcome our sin, but rather we're still operating in the same sinful flesh that is headlong towards hell, and we're just trying to attach Christianity on top of it to kind of numb ourselves through the process of leading to hell. To posture ourselves that I don't care what the Bible says about God's law for me and boundaries for me that actually lead to my joy and satisfaction. I don't care about those things. Rather, I'm just going to work it out and figure it out and try to just continue. I, I just I can't stop sinning, but God's grace is so good. Like This is the biggest argument Paul has for the church in Corinthians when they are celebrating the fact that one of their members is sleeping with his stepmother 
And the church is bringing him before the church and saying, look how good God's grace is that it even covers something like this. So just keep doing it because God's grace abounds. No, what God's grace does is God's grace enters into the heart of that man who's sleeping with his stepmother. And it says, you're destroying your soul. You're destroying her soul. You're destroying the name and renown of Jesus by planting or, or by placing Christianity on this thing. This is not the way I work. The way I work is I come into your heart and I show you something better. I show you myself. And when I give you myself, it allows you to be able to say no to this sin and to be able to say yes to something that's actually going to bring you satisfaction. And so kind of bringing that back into this idea of money. We can keep operating the way we operate with anxiety and with weight and with burden of finances and with kind of running around like the birds and trying to figure it out ourselves or doing nothing like the lilies and just have this anxiety drive us that really produces fear, that then produces unbelief. And anytime we drive into unbelief, we're always going to try to kind of leave God and run from God or blame God that we're in the situation we're in. And so what we need to do is we need to look at our provision that God's providing. And how might Christ come into this picture and look at it and say, I want freedom for you. I want freedom for you. I want grace for you in this area. And so I want you to audit yourself. I want you to look at your life. Look at the way you spend your money. Look at the way you spend your time. Look at the way you invest all of those things. Are you storing up treasures in heaven or are you trying to store up treasures in earth in storage units where moth and rust destroy? Like I hate to tell you, but all the possessions you have are the future stuff of garage sales and dumps. Every single bit of it. And so how are we using our things? What's our relationship to these things? Again, it's not that we're anti-things and that we're anti-money and that we're anti-nice houses and nice cars. But if your love is tied into those things, and your identity and your satisfaction's there, then you're hypocritical. And you're going to live under the weight of anxiety and the weight of fear and the weight of suicide, essentially. But if we're able to look at all of our stuff and say, God, you're providing this, and so in providing this, how can I be mature in a way in which I'm able to loosen my heart in relation to these things and then be free to now be able to bless others with the things that I have, whether that's giving money, whether that's selling stuff, whether that's, um, um, I mean, we're in our household talking about, I'm not saying everyone has to do this, so just don't, I'm just giving examples. We're, we're looking at getting rid of cable just because we want to free ourselves up. And now that I've said it, we have to do it. 
Sorry, babe. But anyway, like we're looking at things in our life in order to free ourselves up because we don't want to live under the weight of anxiety. We know that God is providing all that we need. And we know that within that provision that he's giving us, he's giving us the amount to be able to be a blessing to others, to be able to be generous to others. We're not saying let's, let's figure out a way just to break even. No, let's figure out a way in which we can be joyfully, sacrificially generous. That includes us giving to the mission of God, to the church. That includes us being able to open up our house and have people over for dinners. Like that costs money. Like that, there's ways in which we, we want to be a blessing to others. And I'll be honest, guys, we've been in your boat. We're in the boat with you of anxiety around this stuff. So I'm not coming from a level of we're nailing it. No, we're coming from a level of we're auditing. We're auditing because we want to tighten our hearts to you and we want to loosen our hearts of all the stuff that is keeping us from being able to do that. So finish like Barnabas. Barnabas did not love money and things. He sold his field, did not dream about all the comforts and pleasures he was giving up. He reveled in the freedom of faith. He dreamed about the good that would be done with his gift and the glory it would bring to Jesus. He did not want to appear more generous than he was. He did not need the praise of men. He had the approval of God. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What you saw was what you got with Barnabas. He's real when it comes to this. Therefore, he didn't have to lie. He loved the truth. He could be trusted. His integrity became legendary in the early church, which is why they gave him the job of distributing to the poor because they saw how generous and how, and, um, how strong his character was. And finally, he brought no reproach on the Holy Spirit. He knew that the Spirit was alive and real in the church. He knew that his every thought was open and laid bare before the Spirit of truth. And he knew that the gift of grace in his life was not the permission of God to keep on loving things, but the power of God to start loving people. So let's be more like Barnabas and not like Ananias. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good word to us um, this morning. We thank you that you are a God who is providing all that we need. And God, you know our needs intimately. I mean, you know every single hair that's on our head. You know every, every bill that we have, um, every medical bill we're trying to get caught up on, every job that we're in search of, every debt that we owe. But God, you also know every opportunity that we have in order to use your provision to love others. And so God, my prayer is to provide a healthy conviction for each one of us. Not that's a heavy burden, but that's actually a, a yoke that is light, that is freeing us of the anxiety of things and of the anxiety of budgets and, and all these things. That's freeing us to be able to be generous people So God, lead us in that. Give the Holy Spirit to us in, 
in extraordinary ways in our hearts and in our minds to be able to come together and to be able to be free from things and to bind ourselves to others. God, would you do that? Would you do that for us? It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we close out, we close out each service with communion as we take together. Um, the beauty of communion is the fact that it is a representation of the generosity of God. I mean, we're, we're talking today just about material things. Like, I'm not, I'm not up here saying I'm going to give my son to you. <laughs> or I'm going to sacrifice him on an altar in order for your sins to be forgiven. Like, I'm not saying that. I don't even know if I would be able to do that. I don't like you that much. But what I am saying is this is exactly what God did. God looked at our situation. He looked at what we needed. And he took the initiative himself in order to give his son. For God so loved the world, he gave his son. No one is going to outgive God in what he gives to us. And so he gives his son Jesus in order to go to the cross and to break his body and to shed his blood as an act of generosity so that you don't have to break your body and shed your blood. We don't have to do that. Christ did that for us. And so communion is an act of worship in which we go to him and we say, thank you, Lord, for what you have done and what you've accomplished that, that allows me to be able to come into the family of God. And that allows me to be able to receive this freedom where I'm able to run in the provision that you provide for me. And so let's trust him. Let's believe him. Let's worship him. Let's have faith in him. Let's not be, oh, you of little faith. Let's be, hey, thank you, Lord. Thank you. You're providing. You're awesome. I'm going to walk in that. I'm going to run in that. I'm going to play in that area. And so let's do that in this time. Let's take communion together. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at